Well, good morning. Good to see you all again, and good morning to everyone tuning in online. Happy Fourth of July weekend, as it's already been said. I hope you guys have fun stuff planned over the next couple of days. Today, we're kicking off a new series called Power Struggle through the book of Ephesians. And you might be wondering, if you're kicking off a sermon series through the book of Ephesians, well, why did you read a scripture this morning from the book of Acts? Well, the first time that we hear about Ephesus is in the book of Acts. Uh, we, we see that on Paul's third missionary journey, he spent a significant amount of time in Ephesus. He spent three years in Ephesus. That's the most time that he spent in one place uh, while on his missionary journey. And also we call the series Power Struggle because the theme of power shows up quite a bit in Ephesians. Paul talks quite a bit about power, the role of God's power, uh, spiritual warfare and, and, and the power of darkness coming against God's people. And so uh, we call this series Power Struggle because we see this big cosmic battle taking place between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. So I'm super excited to kick that off today. But before we go any further, let's go before our king and pray. Father God, we come to you in your mighty and matchless sons, Jesus' name. God, we come confessing that you are all-powerful, that, that all of the power exists in your hands. Father God, I pray that you would move me out of the way. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase and be made much of in the lives of your people. God, speak to us clearly through your word. God, articulate your thoughts God, minister to your people. You know what they're going through. You know what they need far more than I do. So we just pray for your mercy this morning. It's in your mighty and matchless sons, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. So power struggle. We live in a world with all kinds of power struggles, political power struggles, philosophical power struggles. But I tell you this, you have never experienced the power struggle until you've tried to get a two-year-old to go to sleep that does not want to go to sleep. I have a 20-month-old daughter, and some nights there is a power struggle. There is a war of wills. Has anybody ever been there? There is a war of wills trying to get her to go to sleep. And some nights we say, Luca, okay, it's time to go night-night. And sometimes she'll go, <laughs> no. And I don't know where she learned that from, but she'll, she'll fight back. Her, 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 her will will push against our will, and we'll have a power struggle for a little while before she finally goes to sleep. Somebody told, somebody told me that that goes away at 16, so no more power struggles. <laughs> I guess somebody told me wrong. But a power struggle happens when one person's will pushes against another person's will. You've probably experienced this. But also you can have some internal power struggles. Maybe you have an inter internal power struggle and you know you shouldn't grab for that next M&M. You've had enough M&Ms and you have a power struggle with yourself, or maybe you know you shouldn't say that thing, but you really want to tell that person how you feel, but you keep your tongue shut because uh, you're having this internal power struggle with yourself. Sometimes we feel it in life. We can feel like life is pushing against us. Sometimes it may feel like the wind is, is at our back, and, we're, and we feel the wind at our back pushing, up, pushing us forward, but sometimes we feel like the wind is pushing against us and we get this resistance. 
We might feel it in our families. We might feel it at work. We might feel it in our personal health. And we feel like we're, we feel in this resistance in life. And what tends to happen is, and this has happened throughout all history without, with all people, with humanity, we usually look for something that can help us push through that resistance. We look to things that can give us that strength to, to live. We look for strength to live, and we look for something to help us push through that power struggle. We look for things that might give us power. And here's what we know. We tend to worship what we think will give us power and give to things that we think will give something back. People have done this forever. We tend to worship what we think will give us power and give to things that we think we will give us something back. So we will worship our jobs if we think that our jobs will give us a sense of identity or security. We might worship food if we feel that food can give us a sense of satisfaction to make life worth it. We, we might worship the approval of people if we think that the approval of people will actually make us feel good about ourselves and secure our identity. We tend to worship what we think will give us power and give to things that we think will give something back. And that's how we can subtly fall into something called idolatry, where we worship something and we, we allow it to employ a role that only God is called to employ in our lives. And this is what happened in Ephesus. It was a city that was obsessed with power. Ephesus was actually a very religious city. Uh, Ephesus is what we would know today as modern-day Turkey. It was a big, booming metropolis. It was a major city. It was the second largest city in the known world at that time. Uh, it had a population of 250,000. It was a, a, a port city, and so it was strategic for business. And so there was an economic strength in Ephesus. It was a very powerful place, a very strategic place. And it was uh, also the center of dark magic and sorcery. It, it was a very uh, uh, spiritually aware uh, city. They were very much aware of the spiritual world and spiritual warfare and demons and darknesses and angels. And so this was very much a part of their lives. Where here in the West, we might not be that aware of the spiritual realm. In, Eph in Ephesus, they were very aware of the spiritual realm. They were very aware of spiritual warfare. And because of that, people looked for something to protect them and to give them power because they were afraid of demonic attack or, or, or dark, unseen spiritual forces. And they worshiped idols and practiced magic to protect themselves. One idol that they worshiped was an idol called Artemis. Artemis in, in ancient Ephesus was the goddess of uh, nature and hunting and even of, of life. Women would call out to Ephesus during childbirth to, to uh, assure themselves that they would have a, a good uh, uh, pregnancy in childbirth. And so uh, they would look to Ephesus for power in that way. They believed that Ephesus could give life. Ephesus could give protection. Uh, military generals would sacrifice uh, to Artemis, I mean, uh, to, to to give them protection. And so this is one of the main idols in Ephesus. 
And then there was this place called the Temple of Artemis. This is where that idol was worshipped. And this was actually not just a temple for worship. This was also a financial institution. The Temple of Artemis was one of the first banks uh, in, in the known world. It was one of the earliest financial institutions. And so you have the worship of idols, you have the uh, spiritual darkness, you have uh, a financial institution that is tied to the worship of idols. Paul, why would you want to start a church in a place like that? Why would anybody want to start a church in a place like that? You have idolatry, spiritual warfare, and demons. You, 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 there's not a lot of Christians and Christian influence. You don't have Christians in office. What, what is supposed to happen? How are you going to start a church? How's the kingdom of God going to move forward in a place like that? And Paul says, that's exactly where I'm going, and that's exactly where God has called me. God has called me to go into the darkness and push back darkness. And the, and the reason why Paul is able to step into that darkness and proclaim the gospel is not because of how strong he is or how great he is, but, but because he trusts in the power of God. He's not so great. He's not so powerful. He's a self-proclaimed weak man but his God is all-powerful. So Paul walks into Ephesus in Acts 19. We see that he baptizes disciples. People come to faith. He goes to the synagogue every day and preaches there for three months straight until they kicked him out of the synagogue in Ephesus. That's okay. I get kicked out of the synagogue in Ephesus. Am I going to give up on this mission? No. Paul, while working a job, would rent out a, a, a theater, I mean actually rent out a lecture hall, and he would preach every day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. and he did that for two years proclaiming the gospel in this dark place and he proclaimed the gospel and proclaimed the gospel until the gospel began to spread and the knowledge of Jesus Christ began to permeate this dark place. See, Paul understood the promise. He understood the promise of God. He understood when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and you will receive power to be my witnesses. See, Paul understood the promise, and he understood the power of God, and there was no darkness that Jesus couldn't penetrate. Jesus promised his people power. The word for power in the New Testament that we see is dunamis. Dunamis, that word refers to strength, power, or ability. It's the root word of our English words dynamite, dynamo, and dynamic. And, and God promised his people power. It's the dunamis that resurrected Jesus from the grave. It's, it's the dunamis that empowers ordinary people and allows them to do extraordinary things. And Paul knew that's what he had on his side. He had the dunamis of God, the power of God. So friends, I just want to say this to us today. We're not the first Christians to live in a world where Christianity or the gospel isn't widespread or celebrated. We're not the first ones. We're not the first Christians to be attacked by demons or experience spiritual warfare in our, in our families or at our work or in our health. We're not the first. 
We're not the first uh, Christians to experience darkness in our, in our lives. There are people who have been in this place before. We're not even the first Christians to experience a pandemic. The gospel advances. It always has and it always will. God has promised his dunamis, his power to be with us always. So, so it would be good for us to know this. Our circumstances are not as extraordinary as we think they are. And our God is more extraordinary than we could ever imagine. Our circumstances are not as extraordinary as, as we think they are, but our God is more extraordinary than we could ever imagine. He is God. He always has been God. There's nothing too big or bad for him that he can't control or that he can't handle. Amen. So Paul makes his way into Ephesus. He's preaching the gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel. The message is, is spreading. Let's go to our next slide in Acts 19.11. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. The evil spirits that people feared, these evil spirits that, that had the world all worked up because of the power of God working through Paul, these evil spirits left people. This was good news if you were in Ephesus. You did not have to be afraid anymore. You could sleep a little better at night because God was all-powerful. So these, so these things that people feared, they, they had to bow down at the name of Jesus. As we talk about this power struggle, this isn't uh, apples to apples. This isn't God struggling to beat Satan. No, God is all-powerful. Satan even has to submit to God. And so these demons, they, they fled, they, they, they trembled at the name of Jesus. This was, this was good news. And the word began to get around in Ephesus. The word began to get around that, 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 that there was uh, this man named Paul preaching the gospel in this dark place. And even these demons that we usually fear and tremble had to submit to him. So the word began to get, a, get around, and this is what we see. God's superior power is available to believers and it's working for their best interests. He desires to mediate it to his people for their protection and growth. There is therefore no need for believers to seek any additional protection from the powers by any means. This would include the devising of ways to manipulate the demons or the, in the evoking of angelic assistance. There's no need to do any of that anymore. You don't have to do any of that anymore. God has distributed his power to his church. Let's continue in Acts. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. And so the word had got out that there was power in the name of Jesus. And so some people said, oh, I like that. I like that power in the name of Jesus. I'm going to use me some of that. And here we see somebody trying to use Jesus and not necessarily be used by Jesus. They saw that the power of Jesus was somehow advantageous uh, for them to use for personal gain. Uh, the, these these uh, sons of Sceva that we're going to see, they found out, they heard about Paul preaching the gospel, and they heard about how the demons submit to him. And it's like, ooh, I like that. 
I'm going to get me some of that. I'm going to use Jesus. And this is an example of how God becomes useful to us. We, we, can, we can try to use Jesus for our purposes, and we see this here. And so they heard about this, and over those who were demon-possessed, they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. The seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That did not go well for them. They tried to play with God. My mom would always tell me growing up, don't play with God. And they were playing with God. They wanted to use God. See, God was useful to them, but the power of God is for the weak and the willing and for those who are tr truly submitted to God's plan. God does provide his power, but it's not for us to use for, for personal gain, to, to, to build something for ourselves. Uh, the power of God is for God's kingdom and for God's purposes only. And friends, his power is available to the weak and the willing who are committed to his kingdom. His power is available there, but he will not be used and played with and used like some, uh, some kind of toy that we can just call on. That's what, that's what people do with idolatry. They use an idol for their own purpose, but God says, uh, I will not be used. I will not be mocked. And that's what happened here with the seven sons of Sceva. So once again, the word got around in Ephesus, and what we'll see is word gets around in Ephesus really fast. And so People found out about what Paul did, and now people found out what happened to these guys. It's like, whoa, we heard that the seven sons of Sceva got beat up by a demon. Did you hear about that? They ran out of the house bleeding and naked. Oh, my goodness, did you hear about that? So it was all over Facebook back then. It was everywhere. Everybody was talking about it. Um, and so the word got out, and this put fear in people. They, 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 they knew uh, that these dark practices, they, they needed to stop these dark practices. They knew they, they needed to stop playing with God. Now, the fear of God was spreading in Ephesus at that time. And so uh, people uh, who uh, had dabbled in dark magic and who uh, were, were practicing uh, worship of Artemis, they knew that it was time to stop. They knew there was time to stop playing. And this is what we see. Uh, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. It's like we have to, we have to stop playing. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. They, they burned 50,000 drachmas worth of books. They weren't playing. They said, get this out of my house. Hey, you got some of those books? Get those books out of this house. We're burning these. We don't do that anymore. 50,000 drachmas. Some scholars uh, say that that's about $5.5 million worth of books in our modern time. That's enough money to buy about two tanks of gas these days. That's a lot, <laughs> right? So $5.5 million worth of books burned. The, the industry of idol worship was starting to shake. People weren't so interested in buying those books and buying those idols and buying those statues anymore because, because King Jesus is all-powerful now. 
Because they knew that King Jesus was all-powerful, there was no need to dabble in this magic. There was no need to worship these idols. There was no need to uh, purchase these little statues to worship anymore uh, because we know now that we are secure in the power of Jesus. This should have made everybody happy, but that was not the case at all. This actually upset people. This upset the industry because, remember, the worship of Artemis was also tied to the economic system in Ephesus, the largest financial institution uh, in the world at that time. And because of that, this began to upset the businessmen in Ephesus. And we see this here, a man by the name of uh, Demetrius uh, would get very upset. Uh, so let's go to Acts 19. He said, uh, he, he called together all of the businessmen to talk about this. Have you heard about this? They're not buying my stuff anymore. They're not buying my statues anymore. Did you hear about that? He called them together along with the workers in the related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we received good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers, numbers of people in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. We're gonna lose money, People are going to stop worshiping Artemis. We got to get rid of this guy. We got, to, we got to get rid of Paul because people are placing their hope in Jesus now. They no longer lead. They, don't, they don't, no longer need us. See, the people needed to get worked up. They needed to be afraid. So as long as he can work up the people and keep the people afraid, they'll continue to worship the idol because that's what idols, idols do. They promise us some kind of protection. And if we feel secure in Christ, well, we don't need those idols anymore. And this caused a lot of confusion in Ephesus. This led to a riot in Ephesus. This, was, uh, this caused an, an extremely huge uproar in that town. Let's go to verse 32. They said the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. They're rioting, they're going crazy. Why are we here? I don't even know, but I saw them uh, rioting and I saw them getting worked up. So I got worked up too. This, this place was in utter confusion. The gospel had penetrated this dark space. The name of Jesus is beginning to advance. People are throwing away these uh, unnecessary attachments to idols and this idol worship. They're putting their faith in Jesus and they are shaking the world up. Now, we're, we're in 2022. You might say, well, uh, people don't worship idols anymore. People don't worship little statues anymore. Uh, that's, a, that's an ancient practice. But idolatry is more real than we could ever know. And ultimately, it was Satan behind that idol worship. And what Satan will do is he will lift up an idol and put it in front of us uh, to try to get us to worship it, mainly so, he, so that he can steal glory and rob glory from God. He wants us to place our hope in something else other than the Lord Jesus. And that still happens today. It, it could come in the form of the temple of Artemis, like then, it, or it can come in the form of uh, money, power, a, a, a claim, uh, food, 
Uh, it can show up in these different ways, but, but Satan will put something in front of you and say that you need this, and he will try to displace God in your life. So I want to help us identify some idols. Uh, Sean is going to play the role of an idol for us. Pastor Sean is going to play the role of an idol for us, and we're going to try to identify what an idol might look like in our lives. But while we're doing that, I want to look at, uh, want you to see these four things. One, idols require a place. So an idol wants a place, and primarily that place is going to be in your heart. It might take a place in your, it might take up space in your home. It might take up space in your calendar, and it definitely might take up space in your, in your budget. But, but an idol wants a place, and so it's going to be very present. So our idol has shown up. An idol wants a place. But an idol just doesn't want a place. An idol wants priority. It wants first place. It wants to displace God, and it wants to uh, take up priority. It wants to be the main thing. And so it, it, it will take up your calendar, it will take up your budget, and it wants to be priority. And idols make promises, and this is how it gets us. The idol makes a promise. The idol says, let's just use donuts. That donut says, I will make you happy. Life is not uh, satisfying without me. Where is joy in life without me? And even if my doctor says, hey, you need to, you need to hold off on, them, on those donuts. But I believe the promise of that donut. That donut said it was going to be good to me and I, couldn't, I can't make it without that donut. Or it might be money. Uh, the idol of money promises stability and security. And so it makes a promise. Do I have to believe that promise? No, but what happens is we tend to believe those promises and we make an agreement. And when we make that agreement, we get attached to it. So we get attached to that idol. And now it has a hold on us. Now I'm roped in because I believe the promise. And it promised me more freedom. It promised me more power. But what usually happens is we, we lose freedom. We lose power. This idol has an, an, an attachment to us. And this can come in different kind of ways. This, could, uh, this can come in the form of an addiction. This could be a codependent relationship where I thought I had freedom, but now I'm so attached I don't have freedom. I've given up more power than I've gained. It can come in the form of an addiction. It can come in the form of co-dependency. Uh, it can be an unseen spiritual stronghold. Yes, that does still happen. I know we live in the 21st century and we're modern people, but you can have a spiritual attachment to something, and it is very hard to break. If you've ever been there, it is very hard to break when something gets a hold on you like this, and it's just pulling on you. So idols require a place. Idols uh, demand priority. Idols, uh, they, they get us attached and they make promises. And idols pull on our, our affections. They get our hearts. And that's what, because we believe that promise and we've made that agreement, oh, that idol has my heart now. And it's hard for me to let go. It's pulling on my affections. And how do I get out of this situation? How do I find freedom from that addiction? How do I find freedom from that codependency? How do I find freedom from that stronghold? Well, we got into this by believing a promise. And the only way to get out of this is by believing another promise. You have to believe the promises of God. When we become convinced of the promises of God, 
we find liberation from the promises of idols. When I believe that God is good and that he is enough, that gives me the strength to be able to say, I can let this go. But you have to believe another set of promises before you can break free from this promise. When we become convinced of the promises of God, we find liberation from the promise of idols. And we're able to walk away from this thing. And so it might be hard, but God says he's enough. God says he's good. God says he can satisfy me. Maybe I can say no to that thing. And when we do that, we're able to find some freedom from that idol. And, and, and something happens. We begin to uh, experience the love of God. See, God wants our affections and God wants our heart. And once we fall in love with God and see his beauty, we're able to say no to that thing. And it might be difficult. It might be a challenge. But we're able to, over time, say no to that thing. So bye-bye, Mr. Idol. You can go. So we're, <laughs> we're, able, to say, we're able to say no to that thing. But God has to be more beautiful and more worthy. The only way to experience freedom from idolatry is to be captivated by something more beautiful and worthy than that which you idolize. You have to be captivated by something more beautiful and, and more worthy than that which you idolize. So... Do you love God? Does he have your heart? Not uh, do you do a lot of good things or not whether or not you serve or volunteer or give, but do you love him? That's what he wants to know. There's a movie called Fiddler on the Roof. And in that movie, there's a married couple that have been married for... 25 years. And in this movie, they sang, they sang a duet uh, because they, uh, this was a musical, and they sang this duet, and the, and the husband had a question for his wife. His question to her was, do you love me? Do you love me? After 25 years of marriage, do you love me? After all we've been through, do you love me. That was his question for his wife. So the song goes like this. He says, do you love me? And she she responds by singing, do I love you? For 25 years I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? But his question is to his wife, but do you love me? You've done all these things, but but do you love me? Some of us might have been busy doing things for God, doing things for the church, doing good things. But God's question is, but do you love me? Do I have your heart? Or is your heart somewhere else? Does that idol have your heart? Do you love me? If you have a hard time answering that question, hear this. He loved you first. God loved you first. Before the the foundations of the earth were formed, he knew you. 
and he, he knew your name, and he loved you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He loves you. And because he loves us far more than any idol could ever love us, all that idol wants to do is enslave you and use you. Because of that, he, he's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our praise. Why would we give our allegiance to anything else? Why would we give our heart to anything else? I want to pray for us. Let's pray. If you, God, I, I lift up this prayer to you, God, confessing that we struggle with giving our heart to other things. And I pray for all of us, God, that you would help us break those attachments to idols. Father God, I pray that you would help us find freedom from Satan and his schemes in our lives and help us to fall in love with you. Paul prayed for the Ephesians. He said he hoped that they'd see the, the heights and the depths of God's love and the width of God's love. Well, I pray that for the people here and online that they would see the heights and depths of your love of your grace, and that they would fall in love with you, and that they would be able to say with confidence that they do love you because you first loved them. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.